Please remain standing if you're able, and let's turn to Luke chapter 24. I'd like to begin reading at the end of chapter 23, and we'll read through verse 12 of chapter 24. So look with me at verse 44 of chapter 23. This is God's holy word. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. 
But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Here ends the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. We're actually looking at our first reading today from Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is, uh, of course, uh, the greatest of all the Old Testament prophecies of the Savior, His coming, and in particular, His sufferings and death. Some have called it the Mount Everest of all the many Old Testament prophecies of the Savior's coming. We think of it as a a passage not for Easter, but for Good Friday, because, again, the focus is so much on the promised Messiah's sufferings and death. But it's also a powerful passage about the resurrection. And we not only see the humiliation of God's suffering servant here in this passage, we also see the promise of his exaltation. I want us to just look briefly at this passage. We see here that the death and resurrection of the Messiah was God's perfect plan, and it was necessary, absolutely necessary, for us to be saved. Obviously, our focus today is mainly on the resurrection, but notice first how how clear it's made here that God's promised suffering servant had to die and why he had to die. God's plan was for the Messiah to suffer and die as our sin-bearer. And that's made so clear here in this great Old Testament passage. He came to suffer for the sins of others. Not for any sin of his own. He had no sins, but for the sins of his people. Look at how the Holy Spirit reveals it here in this passage. In Isaiah 53, verse 4. Verse 4 tells us, He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Verse 5 says, He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. And verse 6 says, The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 8 says, He was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And verse 11 says, He shall bear their iniquities. And verse 12, He bore the sin of many. So over and over, we're told here in this passage that the death of Jesus Christ 
was no accident. It was no tragedy. It was God's appointed plan from before the foundation of the world. God had ordained that this should happen, that his son should die for the sins of others, for the sins of God's chosen people. And Isaiah says clearly, it was the will of the Lord for this to happen. He says it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, the Lord, has put him, this suffering servant, to grief. The Lord was the one doing this. God himself doing this to his son. He was sent, Jesus was sent by the Father to be judged by the Father in our place for our sins as our substitute. This was the Father's plan and purpose for his beloved Son so that he might save us and make us his beloved sons in Christ. And all because of his great love for us. There's no other explanation why God would do this to his own one and only eternal Son. The New Testament makes it clear why he did this and what this crushing of his son means. God poured out the fullness of his wrath upon Jesus Christ on the cross. He condemned him with the condemnation that we deserved so that we could be spared from it. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And Ephesians 1, 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. So this suffering servant came into the world to take the punishment of hell for us. He took our place like a sacrificial lamb, and he was led to the slaughter willingly. And that is how God chose to deal with our sins, all our sins. The debt and damage and guilt of our sin is too great to overlook. Sin has ruined mankind. It has ruined the whole universe. And that couldn't be just swept under the rug. It had to be dealt with. It had to be made right. Sin is, a, is an infinite offense to a holy God. And so every sin must be punished. And yet at the same time, God was not willing to leave us, his people, to spend eternity in hell. Because of his great love, he was not willing to allow that. And so he chose instead to take the punishment upon himself. 
and the person of his son. And he promised this all through the Old Testament. And in the fullness of time, he did it. He accomplished it. The Lord Jesus Christ accomplished it. He came. And the unbearable, unimaginable, infinite weight of our sin and guilt was put upon him. It was imputed to him, reckoned to him as if it was his own. And he made his soul an offering for our guilt. That was the whole purpose of his birth, his coming into the world, of God becoming man. He did that. He was born to die for us because of the great, great love of God. Purposeful, sacrificial love for sinners. He did this for you and me, even while we were his enemies. We have gone astray, each and every one of us, like Isaiah says. We've turned each one to his own way. And yet he did this for us. People marvel at that great love of God to undertake this great work of redemption, this great suffering and all that it cost. The Lord Jesus Christ marvel at his great love for you and trust in it. Trust in what his love has done for you. But God's plan was not just to put his son to death. We see here the promise of the resurrection too in this great Old Testament passage. The, the word resurrection isn't here in this uh, passage, but the meaning is, the reality of it is, the promise of it. Look at verse 10. After hearing all those wonderful statements about his death and his death for us, we're told of his resurrection. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. And the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. That's it. That's the promise of the glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. This was God's plan all along. A triumphant plan. A victorious plan. When that suffering servant surrendered his life willingly, dying in our place for our sins, these things would happen. These things would be the result of his perfect sacrifice. First, we're told he will see his offspring. Now, who are his offspring? Who are the offspring of the Messiah? Well, they're certainly not physical offspring. Uh, he had no physical descendants, contrary to uh, the, the uh, goofy beliefs of some. He did not take a wife and have children. Now, we who believe in him are his offspring. We who trust in this crucified, dead, and buried Savior 
We are his offspring. We are the beneficiaries of his death. We are the ones who are accounted as righteous. Our sin and guilt reckoned to him and his righteousness now credited to us through the knowledge of him, through faith in him. We are justified by faith in him who died for us. And yet Isaiah says, he will live to see his offspring. He will live to see what he has accomplished for his offspring. How could that be possible if he died? Well, the only answer, of course, is that he had to be raised from the dead. If his death is a literal fact, as the scriptures teach us, then his resurrection must be also. Isaiah says, secondly, he will prolong his days. The Messiah's days would be prolonged. Well, that makes no sense if you're talking about someone who's dead. Those days of that person are not going to be prolonged. They're ended. They're over. But not for the Messiah. He was indeed dead. But no longer. Revelation 1, 17 to 18, John saw a vision of the risen and exalted Christ. And Christ said to John, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Forevermore. That word, Jesus' days are prolonged forevermore because he lives forevermore. In Romans 6, verse 9, Paul says, Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. His days are prolonged forever." and ever because he has conquered death not only has he done it for himself but he's done it for us who are in union with him sometime soon read Romans 6 we won't take the time to read it now but we see there the beauty of God's plan uh, not just that he raised his son up from death but he's brought us who believe in him into union with his son, into, use, into union with the risen Savior. We're united to him by faith. And now that we are united to him, his death is counted to us as our death, our death to sin. And his being raised up to everlasting life means that we are also raised up to eternal life with him we share in his resurrection life even now and paul is calling us to believe this believe it this is the reality this is who you are now this is what you are now you're no longer the same person you're no longer uh, in your sins and trespasses you're raised with christ you're dead to that old life you died with christ you died to sin you live with him 
And so live your life every day in light of that. Live that way. Don't live in sin any longer. Consider yourself, count yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. That is what you are if you belong to him. Well, coming back to Isaiah, the third thing Isaiah says here uh, about the resurrection, uh, he says it in these words. He says, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand, in the Messiah's hand. He carried out the will of the Lord. He carried out his Father's will perfectly. You remember Jesus was all about doing his Father's will, denying himself his own uh, will His will was to do the will of the Father, no matter how much it hurt. And that will was carried out, and it was an absolute success in his going to the cross. That perfect guilt offering had been made by the sinless Son of God. Christ had died. But now he lives again to continue carrying out his father's saving will. He lives and he has all authority and power now. He lives to execute the father's saving purposes. And he does so. And he does so unstoppably, invincibly. Hebrews 7.25 says... He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. We have an awesome, risen, victorious Savior who has all power and he's wielding it for us. In his prayers, he has all power and he uses it to save us. And he will not fail. So we can have full confidence when we come to him. Come to him, people, for salvation. Call upon him to save you from your sins and he will not fail. He will not fail to save you completely from all things And he will bring you all the way to eternal glory. Verse 11. Here Isaiah says, Furthermore, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. That is such a great statement. He shall see and be satisfied. Obviously, that's not talking about someone who's dead. He was dead, but now he sees and is satisfied. How does Jesus think and feel now about what he's accomplished? He stands back and he looks at the fruit of his labors, having carried out the mission he was given, God's saving plan, having carried it out to perfection through his death and through his resurrection. It's almost as if 
the idea is, was it worth it? Was it worth it? Yes. He looks at his work and he says it was worth it. He's satisfied. You know, the world, the unbeliever, looks at these things that we're talking about, the cross, the news of the resurrection. They think it's just utter foolishness, worthless. But Christ sees better. He sees the whole massive number of God's chosen people from every age redeemed completely, perfectly through his blood, justified fully from all our sin and guilt, delivered from sin and death and hell through faith in him. He sees that. The great shepherd has redeemed every one of his sheep, and he will not let even one be lost. His death and resurrection has accomplished it. It is done. It is finished, as he said. And he sees this, and he's satisfied. Isn't that good? Isn't that comforting to know that our Savior is satisfied? That's what, that's, that's really what the whole of redemption is all about. God being satisfied. God being pleased. It's not just about you and I being saved from hell. It's first and foremost about God and His pleasure and His glory. It was for His own sake that he did all of this. It was for his own sake that he sent his son to suffer and die for us. And that is good. It is right and good. God's glory and God's pleasure and satisfaction are really the most important things in the universe. Our good is, a, is, is far, uh, far, uh, less important. But how good it is to know that those two things work together, God's glory and our good, work together in our salvation. And how good it is to know that our being saved is what brings him such glory and satisfaction. And I believe it does that not just for the Savior, but for all three persons of the Trinity, because all three persons worked together to save us. All three persons love and delight in us as his people. I want to close on, on this thought. What is it ultimately that he's satisfied with? He sees and is satisfied. Was it just the accomplishment of the task that he carried out 
that he's happy about, that he's satisfied with. Redemption was uh, a job that had to be done. It was a, an incredible work that he undertook, and he did accomplish it. That's true. But no, that's not all. It's more than that. Verse 10 speaks of his offspring. He sees his offspring. He sees his beloved people. I think that's the idea here. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is satisfied now with us. He looks out on that whole great redeemed body of people from every tribe and tongue and nation, God's chosen people, His elect. And in time, we can speak of them as all who put their faith in Jesus Christ. All His sheep that He laid down His life for. And He looks upon us now as His perfect, holy, beloved treasures redeemed. And He is tremendously satisfied in us. There's nothing left to do in order for Him to be satisfied with us. He's already taken care of everything. He looks at us corporately, His people throughout all time that He redeemed, and He looks at us as individuals made in his image and he's filled with joy knowing that he has us now because of what he's done we're his and he will have us forever and we will be his pure perfect spotless bride he's cleansed us by his blood we will be one day soon perfected perfected completely and forever in a twinkling of an eye when he comes again that's his satisfaction and he sees it already as if it's already done he's fully delighted in you and I and in all who come to him for salvation. And that's very, very good news. That the same person, Jesus Christ, the same person who is going to come and judge the world in righteousness, our risen, exalted Savior, he is fully satisfied in us and with us. And not, not because of anything that we've done, not because of anything that we will do, or not because of our character or anything good uh, that um, he looks on when he sees us. No, but all because of what he did for us. He's perfectly satisfied with you, believer, because you're clothed with him, with his perfect righteousness. That's a message that we all need to take to heart, believe.
and enjoy. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would bring these great glorious truths home to our hearts. That our Savior did all this. He sought us and bought us with his precious blood. And that he loves us. And that he delights in us now as his redeemed people. Just as if we'd never sinned. As if we were as gloriously perfect and holy and obedient as he is. That is the reality for us now who are united to him. Lord, open our hearts and enable us to believe these things. Enable us to exalt in this great salvation that you have planned and accomplished. And Lord, if any are in our midst who hear these things, who do not yet belong to you, who have not closed with Christ by trusting in him uh, and do not have that comfort and assurance of his love, we pray that you would grant them grace to lay hold of him by faith. For we are unworthy sinners, but his forgiveness and eternal life is for all who trust in him as Savior and as Lord. We pray that you'd grant this to each and every one of us and to many more for your glory and for your good pleasure. And we ask all these things in your son's great and almighty name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.